here. So if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, uh, we're in this series called um, Deeply Rooted, and, and today we're talking about growing deeper. And so I want to talk to you today about this issue of growing deeper. So if you have your Bibles, you can either turn to or click to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, and James chapter 1. We're going to use James as a commentary on Ephesians chapter 20. I've told you this many times. The greatest commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. I mean, Scripture will, will explain Scripture uh, by using Scripture uh, to, uh, to, to explain other Scriptures by using Scripture as a commentary. And so Ephesians chapter 20, verse 4, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 20, and then James chapter 1, and we're going to look at this issue, and I'm, I'm going to give you a, a thesis statement. It's going to be a guiding statement as we walk through this together. The statement is this, salvation is a gift, godliness is a pursuit. Salvation is a gift. Godliness is a lifelong pursuit. Godliness is not a gift. You don't, you don't just automatically get godly. You just don't automatically meet Christ and then you're this godly person. That godliness is a lifelong pursuit. That's what Paul is trying to get the church there in Ephesus to, to understand. That salvation is a free gift when we accept him. And godliness is a lifelong pursuit. Now, here's what the scripture teaches. Here's what, what Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. And we're going to walk through these points very quickly this morning. And we are, I'm telling you, we are, I am preaching towards, we are headed towards the, the table, uh, communion. When we're going to join together and uh, in, in take of the bread and take of the juice and take of communion. And so that's where, we're, that's where we're headed at the close of this service. So verse 20, Ephesians chapter 4. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self. So now all of a sudden we, we saw salvation and now we're seeing godliness as a pursuit. And it's to where you begin to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And I'm telling you, the battle of the Christian life is in your minds. A lot of people talk about the circumstances. A lot of people talk about the temptations. And a lot of people talk about the stuff around them. But I'm telling you, the battle of the Christian life is in your mind. And so he goes on, verse 24, and then to put on a new self, so there's the pursuit, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul would say this, Paul would say growing deeper is an inside job. In other words, it's this inside job, it's not, it's not the outside in, it's the inside out, because whatever is rooted in you will break the surface of your life sooner or later. Um, whatever is in your mind will result into an action sooner or later. And so Paul is trying to get us, and Paul was trying to get them to understand that the battle of the Christian life is in the mind. That it, 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 it's, this, it's this inward work that has an outward, folk, uh, outward harvest. So three principles before we take communion together about this issue of growing deeper. The first one is this. Growing deeper starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that may sound basic. This is where, just watch. Well, let's just read verse 22. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him. Stop right there. Paul never preached to a congregation and assumed that everybody was a believer. He never did that. In fact, is Jesus didn't do it either. And we shouldn't do it as well. And so Paul's like assuming you're in a relationship with Christ. Assuming you, you've had this transformation, this thing that's happened in your life, and that you're in a relationship with him. And so he goes on, he says, you've learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him, and you were taught in him, 
and the truth is in Jesus Christ. Listen, let me tell you something. Growing deeper happens from the inside out. I mean, isn't that the way planting happens? It starts with a seed. And the seed grows under the soil, under the earth, and then as it grows and as it matures, it grows into a mature plant. And so Paul is saying, and you've, you've heard about him, you learn about him, and then you understand that the truth is in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I, I'm not even assuming that all of you are believers, that you've come to that place in your life to where you've, you, you understand that your sin has separated you from God, you ask him to come into your life to forgive you of your sins, and then there's, there's, this, there's this transformation is what Paul says starts happening to where you begin throwing off your old manner of life, throwing off a former way of living, and you begin putting on, by the renewing of your mind, a new way to live, a new way to think, a new way to act, uh, a new way to make decisions in life. And so Paul is talking about this issue that, that salvation, yes, salvation's a gift. But godliness, let me tell you something. If you're around someone and you say, that is a godly man or that is a godly woman, it didn't happen by accident. It was a pursuit. It was a discipline of throwing off the old and putting on of the new. The second principle is this about growing deeper. Growing deeper is putting off the old way of living. Verse 22, he says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So all of a sudden, so you see again, you see desires, deceitful desires. You see it's from the, the inside out. And so th there are people who, who are Christians, and they are living. They are not living. They're just existing. I mean, I mean they, they may be professed believers, and they may talk about having a relationship with Christ, but really and truly their, their life looks no different than someone who is without Christ. Their marriage really doesn't look any different than someone who is without Christ. The way they make business decisions really isn't any different than someone who doesn't know Christ. And so what Paul would say, is, you know what, I, I got to tell you, that, that's just existing. And he uses his term, he uses his term, your former way of life. In the Greek, that's a word picture. In the Greek, that means wearing a costume or putting on a costume. And Paul is trying to get them to understand, you're a new creation in Christ. You, you, listen, your past sins don't define you. You are not who your sins say you are. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That you're totally in Christ, you're totally and completely forgiven. And so you don't have to walk around in the junk and the stuff of the past. You don't have to walk around in the shame of the past. And Paul is trying to get them to understand growing deeper is an inside job. And it starts on the inside, a relationship with Christ. And then you begin throwing off a former manner way of living. In other words, those old behaviors, that old person, that's not who you are. And you're not defined by by the sins of your past. And so Paul is asking, Paul is saying, are you going to wear, are you going to wear, are you going to wear a costume? Or are you going to be who you really are in Christ? Your identity is not in the world, it's not in what you do. Your identity is in Christ. And are you going to, are you going to, are you going to live that out? I don't, I don't like wearing costumes. I hate costume parties. I don't even go to a costume party. Because nobody recognizes you, right? And Paul is saying, you can wear a costume if you want. But it's going to suck the life out of you. Because it's not who you really are because there's a disconnect I'm t of who you are 
in Christ and how you're living. I'm telling you, the most, the most miserable people I know, the most joyless Christians I know are those that are living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And they're trying to navigate in the tr between those two. And they're trying to walk through life, and it's existing. It's existing in this world, and it's existing in this world because it's not who they really are. I mean, understand this issue. And so, so Paul's trying to get them to understand with deceitful desires about this issue of temptation. I, I, wanna, I want to, you to understand this morning. I think this is where, really where the freedom is in this, is I want you to understand temptation. I want you to understand the process of temptation. I want you to understand from a biblical perspective what is temptation, what isn't temptation. I really, I really believe this may sound weird, uh, but God gave me this insight years ago when I'm standing in the Arkansas River fly fishing. And I just started talking about James chapter 1, 13 and, and following, and, then, and then, then, then the life of a fly fisherman or the life of, of how, to, how you catch a fish. But I want you to understand some, some things about about this issue of temptation, and I want you to understand this. Temptation is an inside job, not an outside job. There are a lot of people that think temptation is about the external, whether it's something we see, whether it's something we look at, whether it's something we focus on. And so a lot of people, when they start talking about temptation, it's all about the external. It's all about the circumstances. But, but Paul and James would tell us, guess what? Temptation, inside job. I mean, watch this. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, you stop right there. Man, in my Bible, well, now it's electronic. That is highlighted, but old school, it was underlined and, and, and you know, starred and everything else. So stop right there. When tempted, not if, not there is a chance, there's a possibility. You, you and I will never, in this godly pursuit, you will never get to the place in your Christian life to where you're no longer tempted. I mean, I've met Christians that, that will sit there and they'll tell me and, and they'll say things like, you know what, we're just at, we're at the place in our life that we're no longer tempted. There's a Greek word for that, hogwash. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean are, are you like me that when you come up with Christ, against Christians like that in the community or whatever, they tell you, you know, we're the pastor, we just got to tell you, we're just, we're just kind of, we're just so much spiritual than everybody else. And we just got into that place. We're no longer tempted. Don't they kind of creep you out? <laughs> Telling you, you will never get to the place. You will never come to the place to be so spiritual that you are no longer tempted. So, so Paul, or James says here, he said, when tempted, not if tempted, not, not one day you'll no longer, but he says, when tempted, and he goes, oh, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So, so we'll, never come, listen, we'll never come to the place where we'll no longer be tempted. So look at this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is what Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. So here's some good news this morning for you. Every one of us is tempted. Okay? So here, here's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to speak into your life. You know why? Because he wants to push your temptation into the darkness. And if your temptation gets pushed into the darkness, you lose every time. Because the only thing to get, bring freedom in temptation is the light. And so here's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to tell you when you're tempted... I'm the only one that's tempted in that area. 
I'm the only one that's ever thought that. If everybody knew the temptation that I'm dealing with because I'm the only one, they would reject me. Can I tell you this? Temptation is common to man. In this room, I promise you, there's enough people in this room. Somebody in this room is struggling with the same temptations you struggle with. Deal with the same thoughts you deal with. Deal with the same situations that you deal with. It is a false belief, and it's not even biblical to think, I'm the only one that desires that, that thinks that, or that is tempted like that. And so, so t- but the problem with temptation, temptation is very short-sighted. In other words, temptation only thinks about the present tense. It only thinks about the, what's happening now. Godly pursuit thinks about the long term. And he goes on, he says, well, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So you and I cannot say when we give in to temptation, I couldn't resist. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't resist. Because that's a promise out of Scripture. Let me tell you, by the way, temptation is not a sin. Temptation doesn't prove you're evil. It proves you're human. Temptation, not a sin. What we do with that temptation may be sin. But temptation in of itself is not sin. See, see, Satan would like to, to shame you and for you to believe that it's a sin and push it into the darkness. And so he says, and he goes on, but with the temptation, he, God, another promise, he will provide for you an off-ramp. He will provide for you an escape so that you may be able to endure it. And so I really believe this. When temptation comes in our life, we should ask, us a que- ask ourselves a question, what is this going to cost? I mean, what is the end results of this? Because here's what I believe. If every one of us, when temptation comes and we understood the consequence, we understood where we would end up, we wouldn't do it. The problem with temptation is very short-sighted. And so James is trying to get us to understand, listen, don't be surprised when temptation comes because it's going to come. So if we're honest, including me, we all have issues. We all have struggles. We all have temptations. We may handle those issues, those struggles, those temptations differently, but we all have them. Fact is, Jesus Christ was tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, here's what it says about Jesus. He says, for we do not have a high priest. The high priest referred to there is Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So temptation is not sin because it says, and yet he was without sin. So temptation is not sin. It is, it is not a sin to be tempted. Temptation is not sin. And let me tell you something. If someone tells you, if someone opens up to you and tells you, hey, this this is what I'm tempted to do. This is a temptation I'm dealing with. Do not shame them. Can we go a little, you guys okay? We go a little bit deeper? There is no shame in temptation. Tell you what, I have a lot of experience in shame and until many years ago, a, a godly counselor Uh, came into my life and helped me with the issue of shame in my life. And and that now just gave me unbelievable freedom. 
Shame is deadly. And there's no shame in temptation. See, here's what happens. The danger of shame and temptation is when you're tempted and you can't believe, I just thought that. I just desired that. And then shame comes in. It pushes that temptation into darkness where you'll never have freedom. So when someone tells you, this is how I'm being tempted, don't shame. Don't, don't ever say shame on you. Shame on you for thinking that. Parents, you want to have great conversations with your children? Never shame them for their temptation. Because you're going to push it into the darkness. With your husband and your wife, never shame your spouse for temptation. Temptation is a general sense that nothing's ever going to get better in my life. That I've always been this way. I'm always going to be this way. And I'm never, it, my life is hopeless. But see, Paul is trying to get us to understand this transformation that you have this former way of life and you have this new way of life and that there's hope. See, conviction is different than shame. Shame is general. Shame is this general feeling that I'm hopeless and it's never going to get any better and I'm just a worthless person. Conviction is from God. Shame's not from God. And conviction is very specific. Here's what you're doing in your life. Here's what you need to change. And I've got a better life for you. And I'll forgive you. See, we live, we live in a world of blame, right? We're either blaming our parents because they, you know, they put our pampers on too tight or, or, or you know, they forgot to kiss us goodnight one night or whatever it is. And so we blame our parents, we blame society, we blame the government, we blame teachers, we blame our spouse. And so it's blame, blame. And so we live, and so you've got to own what, you, what is yours to own. And can I tell you, Christians are really, really good at blaming God. That's why James says in verse 13, he says, he says, never say, no one should say God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You know how people blame God? They blame God for, for their choices. Uh, they, they blame God. They say, God, if you didn't want me to meet that guy, why did our paths cross? If you didn't want me to meet her, why did you put her next to me in biology class? Why did you put her there in the office? I mean, if you didn't want, you know, if you didn't want me to meet her, God, this is how you wired me. I just am who I am. This is how you created me. You created me sinful. That's blaming God. Adam and Eve did it, right? When Adam and Eve ran out of excuses with God, when God confronted them, it was this issue of blame. And then all of a sudden, James goes even deeper into this issue, this process of temptation. Here's what he says, verse 14. But each one of you is tempted when by his own evil desires, so it's from the inside out. He is dragged away and enticed. Those are hunting and fishing terms. We're going to understand those. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. In other words, do not be deceived about temptation. Do not be deceived about the process of temptation. That, listen, the problem with temptation, that's why Paul, James says, don't be surprised when it comes. Why? Because temptation doesn't give us any advance warning. That's one of the reasons it's temptation. And sometimes we don't see it as temptation. That's why he's saying don't be deceived. And so there's this process that is a lot like fly fishing of temptation that God gave me in standing in the river, the Arkansas River. And the first step to, to temptation is desire. 
Because temptation is an inward, inward it's, 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 a, it's something that's on the inside. It's, it's inward and not outward. And all the, the process, are all, they all start with D because it's easy for me to remember and because James used them as well. And James says, guess what? Temptation starts by your own desire. Listen, temptation is an inside job. To be tempted by something, you've got to desire it, right? There are some foods that I will never be tempted to eat. Sorry. <laughs> like a turkey burger. I mean, that's just, that's just wrong. Uh, that is wrong. And there's, there's others like couscous or whatever that is, I, or hummus. I can't even figure hummus out. Who eats? Well, I know who eats that, but God, <laughs> God bless you. And so there's some... There's some, I'm moving on now, thank you. And so there's, there's some foods that, guess what, I will never eat. Why? Because I'm not, I don't desire them. I'm not tempted to eat. And so you, you, you take this issue and you understand, for it to be temptation to you, you have to desire it. And so there's some good desires that God has given us. There's a desire to, to, to eat, and there's a desire to drink, and there's a desire to sleep, and and we have a sexual desire, or there's a, there's, a, there's a desire to succeed, or there's a drive to succeed. And those are good desires that God has given us. But out of control, they become destructive. And Satan loves to take a legitimate desire in my life, or a legitimate desire in your job, in your life, and turn it into this runaway desire, this obsession. And so there's an inward part of temptation, there's an outward part of temptation, and there's it's an inside job, and so it starts with desire, and then it moves from there to deception. And I really want you to see this this morning, and I really want you to understand this. And so James says that he's dragged away and he's enticed. Those are, that's a hunting term and a fishing term. Dragged away was a hunting term where, where you would snare an animal with a trap, and then, then the animal would die a slow death, and the hunter shows up and drags the, the animal away. Uh, there's, there's the other word that he used, entice, that was a, a fishing term, and, um, and that means lured by bait. So when you fly fish, um, to catch fish, to catch trout, you've got to do two things. You've got to have the right approach, and you've got to use the right bait. In other words, you have to have the right approach. The, the fly has to mimic a, uh, uh, an actual, the real thing. It's an imitation, but it has to mimic whatever they're feeding on. It has to have the same drift. It has to have the same flow. And then you have to use the right bait. In other words, because this issue of temptation is from the inside out. And so I got in a, in a, in a period of fly fishing. I started tying my own flies. And, and you'd have a picture of the real thing. And you'd take a fly and, and you would tie it with, with some material. And you would hide a hook in there because if the fly, if the fish sees the hook, they're not going to bite. And, they, and then the line has to be small because if they see the line, they're not going to, they're not going to, Take the bait. And so here's the interesting thing. Basically, you know what fly fishing is? It's trying to deceive fish and hide a hook. That's all it is. And it's taking a fly that mimics the real thing, and you get the right drift, you get the right float, and you, you float that fish or that fly in front of the fish. And so how do you, how do you know what bait they desire? I mean, you, you, you can't talk to a trout can't ask it you watch their behaviors you watch what's emerging on the water the bugs that are hatching you watch the hatch you look at the bugs that are on your windshield of your truck when you're headed out to that place 
you watch the, the flies that are taken. I, 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 fish with a, I, I have fished with a really good friend years back, and, and he's now moved and out of state. But uh, when he catches first trout, would rip that fish out of the water, and he had a stomach pump. Uh, they make those for fish. And so he would take this syringe and stick it down the throats of the, the mouth of the trout, and no fish were harmed in this. And so uh, he, would, and he would literally pump its stomach. And then he would take the, the fish, and he would squish out the, the stuff, and then in the palm of his hand were all the bugs that the, that the fish had been feeding on. And all of a sudden he knew, now we know what they're feeding on. And then I guess the gross part is he would just... He'd eat it. Yeah. And he could tell you which bugs were bitter and which bugs were his favorite. Like he'd never eat a grasshopper because he, well, he'd pull the legs off the grasshopper because he said the legs were bitter. I, I don't know that. That's just what he says. Yeah, now, now you won't want lunch, right? And so what, say, what, what bait does Satan use with you in temptation? He can't read your mind. He can't read your thoughts. He watches your behaviors. Here's the interesting thing about a trout. You, a good fly fisherman fishes towards the fish. He spots the fish, and he keeps laying that fly out in front of that fish. As a fly fisherman, you know how you, you're going to catch that trout? is when that trout turns its head. And once that trout turns his head, you know you got him. Here's the interesting thing about a trout. When a trout will take a fly, you have a split second to set the hook because he's going to figure out pretty quickly if it's, if it's fake. He's going to feel the hook. He's going to feel the line, and he will spit it out uh, so quickly. Uh, they won't keep nibbling. You have a split second. Can I tell you this? What's interesting about us? When temptation comes, sometimes we'll take the imitation. We'll take the fake. We'll feel the hook. We'll feel the line, and we'll keep nibbling. And we'll say things like, I'm an adult. I know how far I can go. I can stop anytime. God wants me happy. I deserve to be happy. And as Christians, Christians are so good about justifying sin and justifying their, their actions, and they begin to say, it's not really sin. And they'll twist Scripture, take Scripture out of context to prove it. And then he goes on and uses a hunting term, and he says, dragged away. See, here's the deal. It's, it's another word for that is slave to sin. See, when, when, I, when I set the hook, that, that fish is now slave to me. And I can take that fish, and I can drag that fish all over the river. Fact is, where, that fish, where, where I want that fish to go, that fish now goes. That fish once had freedom, could swim the whole river uh, upstream, downstream, decide where to hold, decide where to feed, decide where to lay eggs, decide where to rest, all of those things. But now, that fish is now a slave to me. And I can even take that fish places that that fish may not desire to go or created to go. Like from the river to my frying pan. Because it's a slave to sin. And see, verse 15, the next D is disobedience. This is, when, this is when temptation becomes sin. Up until this point, it wasn't sin. Verse 15, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Listen, what begins in your mind results in an action and is it, to, to, where you, to where you don't understand that with temptation, there's an inward desire and there's an outward desire. But this outward part is so powerful. Listen, TV advertisers, I believe, advertising specialists, understand these principles better than most Christians. 
Because they get it. They understand in advertising. If they, can, if they can get you to imagine yourself doing it, you'll buy it. If we can get them to imagine themselves wearing that, driving that, drinking that, hitting that, going there, they know they got you. If this didn't work, why would TV advertisers spend, not, spend so much money on advertisement if it didn't work? And so you got desire, you got deception, you got disobedience. And then it leads to death. It's called being a slave to sin. He says when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. In other words, it's tragic consequences. Let me just tell you, and I know this is a harsher side of temptation. God gives you freedom of will. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequence. You can, you can choose any sin you want. It's free will. But guess what? You don't get to choose your consequence. You don't get to choose where you end up. You don't get to choose when there's a struggle, when there's pain. I mean, we're in a season you can enjoy the kicks of sin. But you are not free to eliminate the kickbacks of sin out of your life. And all of a sudden, James like shifts gears to verse 17, and he starts talking about the goodness of God. And the reason he does that is because temptation is so short-sighted, and, and godly pursuit is long-term thinking, because it's, it's the goodness of God, it's the, that God is good and God is faithful. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, he says temptation changes. Temptation, it seems to be one thing, and it's not. It's a shifting shadow. But God is not that. God is not a shifting shadow. Temptation is bait and switch. God is not bait and switch. God is real, and what you see is what you get. The last thing is this. Growing deeper is putting on a new way of living. Verse, 17, verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To where you understand, man, to where you understand that, guess what? Godliness is not a gift, it's a pursuit. And it's understanding temptation, it's understanding what it is. Let me ask you this morning, do you understand where you're vulnerable? Do you understand what your temptations are? Where are you most vulnerable? Is it because of anger or maybe a temper or spending or, or uh, in the area of relationships? Maybe it's uh, drinking or, 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 or whatever. And where are you tempted? Where are you, where are you vulnerable? Where is the weak spots of your life? So that you understand what temptation looks like. To where you come to the place and God sets you free from all of that. This morning I told you that we're preaching and worshiping to the table, to communion. Our servers are going to prepare the elements as we get ready to take communion as a, as a church family. This morning, we're going we're gonna to take communion just a little bit differently. fact is, we've never taken communion this way at Fellowship the Rockies. And as they're preparing the bread and the juice, in just a few minutes, they'll begin heading, handing that out. And this morning, the Scripture talks about this issue that, that we should never enter into this time, we should never enter into communion without examining our lives. This may be your first weekend here at Fellowship the Rockies, and you may be wondering, can I take 
communion or not? And the answer is absolutely. You don't have to be a member of Fellowship the Rockies to take, take communion, but you do, do have to meet the biblical requirements, and that is this, that you're a believer. It's, this, is, this is for believers. And so the Bible teaches this, that before we take of the bread and before we take of the juice, that we should examine our lives. And the way that we do that is through Scripture. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray as they're handing out the bread and the juice. And then as they hand out the bread and as they hand out the juice, you'll, as the plate comes by, there's two cups, one on top of the other. You guys can come on whenever you're ready. Um, the, um, there's two cups, one on top of the other. You'll hold those there in place. You'll watch the script. Oh, the scripture's going now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then you'll use this scripture uh, to examine your life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And Father, we just ask that you pull this church very closely to you and that we examine our life before you before we take of the bread and we take of the juice. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to take communion a little bit differently. 
and we're going to read together, and I'll guide you through this in just a few moments, and this, this will be new to us here at Fellowship of the Rockies. There's a reason. There's something called the Apostles' Creed. When the early church was being formed and the, the scriptures were being canonized and they were gathering up the letters and they were gathering the scripture, the apostles got, apostles got together and says, we, we, need to, we need to declare what we believe and why we believe and what is distinct about us as a people group as Christ's followers. And so they developed the Apostles' Creed and the Apostles' Creed was recited in churches up until 325 A.D. when they developed the Nicene Creed. We have worshiped to this creed this morning. And so we're going to read that, 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 that creed together. There's, there's a phrase in there that may confuse you, and I just want you to understand that. And we're going to make a declaration as the Holy Catholic Church, small c, not big c. So Catholic, small c, means this, universal church. Uh, universal church, all believers together, the body of Christ together is what we're declaring. We're not declaring any one church. We're not declaring any one denomination. It is the universal church, all believers joined together. And so I'm going to ask you if you would hold the bread and the juice in place, and then would you stand with me? And in just a few minutes, the, the words are going to come up on the screen. And let me tell you how you read this. You don't read this with a church voice. You read this with energy. You read this with meaning. This is what communion is. Communion is our testimony. It is us standing on the word. It is us standing on the principles of scripture. And so we're going to declare this together as a church family before we take of the bread and we take of the juice. So you read along with me aloud, loudly as we declare this. You ready? Here we go. I believe in God the Father. Almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried and he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen and amen and amen. Sometimes you just need to hear you're forgiven. You are totally and completely forgiven in Him. You are putting off the old way of life. And you're putting on the new. And in Him, you are totally and completely forgiven. You are perfect in Him. You are deeply loved in Him. And we declare that this day. And we take of the bread and we take of the juice with confidence that we are totally and completely forgiven. Father, we thank you for today. Father, we thank you for this bread that represents your body. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. And we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for taking on my sin and taking on our sin. And giving up your life for us. 
so that we could be in right standing with God. And we thank you for that, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take with me? This juice represents Jesus' blood. The scripture says, without the shedding, the giving of his blood, there'd be no forgiveness of sin. Because of his blood on the cross, we're totally and completely forgiven. Father, we tell you thank you for the giving of your blood, for the forgiveness of our sin. May this morning, may we know we're totally and completely forgiven. May we walk out of here with complete freedom because we know that we've been forgiven. Lord, break the bondage of the old way of life. And may we pursue you, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take with me, please? Just bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me ask you real quickly, what is God saying to you as a result of this message? More importantly, how does he want you to respond? If you're carrying a burden, you say, you know, I just need someone to pray for me this morning. We'd love to pray for you. Just a few minutes after I pray, I'm just going to invite you just real quickly. We won't be in this moment long. That if you need prayer for any area of your life, that you just step out into the aisle, begin making your way down to the front. Have some prayer partners down here. People will be coming with you. You don't have to walk alone. But if you need prayer in any area, you come. Father, we thank you for tonight, for today. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace. Father, would you pull this church very closely to you? And Father, would we be willing to respond to you? And would burdens be lifted? Would prayers be answered as we humble ourselves and respond to you? Would we remember we are not responding to a pastor? We are not responding to a church. We're responding to you. And we look forward to see what you're going to do. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.